0: Hello everyone, thank you so much for coming along to uh, our presentation. I'm going to do the uh, formal bit of the morning of presenting the slides and then we have Libby and Jan here who will join us in the last uh, half hour to um, with the discussion and to answer, um, well, at least attempt to answer any questions that you might have. Um, we will try and keep most of the sort of meaty questions and discussion to the end, but if you've got any sort of quick questions or clarifying as we go through, please don't hesitate to uh, put your hands up. Okay, Um, just before we start, just to get an idea of people's sort of level of experience and confidence with the NDIS, we've got anyone in the room who would sort of feel they're pretty reasonably, you know, across what they need to be across, even perhaps a bit expert in the NDIS. Anyone put their hand up to that? No one who works at the NDIS or the NDIA with us today? Okay, all right. Who have we got in the room that's really not really encountered the NDIS, uh, NDIS yet? Who's just at the very beginning of this sort of understanding? We've we got anyone? Just a couple of people. So perhaps like Libby, Jan and I, the rest of you, are we're all in together in this kind of group that have had some experience, uh, particularly perhaps as it relates to our particular area of work, um, but still feel we're on a very steep learning curve. So we'll do our best to share with you today what we've been learning so far, um, both in our clinical experience and also in the project that we've recently um, completed. So. Who we're talking about today, Uh, again, look, the NDIS is this just massive, monstrous sort of complex thing. We're just hiving off a little area here today. Uh, We're talking about people with severe brain injury, living in shared supported accommodation um, or specialist disability accommodation, as the NDIS call it. Uh, and with supported uh, independent living funding or SIL funding which is for the shared support or perhaps people living at home with um, high levels of support. So that's the sort of group we're talking about and what we hope to do today is share our clinical experience in working with this group over the last couple of years and also um, share with you uh, some of the outcomes from our recent work where Libby um, was um, awarded a uh, NDIS workforce fund project grant and um, we've been looking at um, which we'll talk to you about um, towards the end and Libby will give you a tour of the uh, website that's come out of that um, project. So this is what we all know for those of us who've worked in brain injury for a long time Um, over the years, and a lot of what we know here has been shaped. Uh, We've been lucky in Victoria to have the Slow to Recover program. Um, We've also had TAC for a long time. And I think, you know, the sort of investment that both of those um, funding bodies have made in rehabilitation or what we now call capacity building um, for people with severe brain injury I think we would all sort of feel like we've come to know that this is the potential our clients bring into their um, rehabilitation um, programs, that um, we've got often significant lifetime support needs, but despite that, there's an opportunity to build skills um, over the person's lifetime. We need to individualise and plan those programs and the more consistency and repetition uh, and meaning Um, that we can bring into these then, you know, the better the uh, outcomes. And in the long term, um, we've probably, many of us in the room, have seen some really good results in terms of maximising people's social role participation. Um, And we certainly have a lot in common with the NDIS when, at that last point, which is really one of the sort of stated goals of the NDIS, is to look for those kind of outcomes in terms of social participation. So, come to the NDIS. I'm just going to do a little snapshot of where ABI perhaps sits in the NDIS. So, this has come from their um, dashboard um, uh, reporting in March this year. So, you can see ABI here is 3% of NDIS participants. It's actually a really small number, although you've got um, some of the other neurological problems on this um, list as well. This is their expenditure for brain injury, and you can see that the bulk of the the, um, plans that people are getting are coming in at this sort of under $50,000 mark. They're possibly not the type of people that... the level of disability that we've been... um, Well, it's hard to know what's led to that, but... I guess our clients are more that we're focusing in on are more up this end, and you can see that um, there are some much higher um, levels of funding um, provided to some clients. So they're sort of this is the spe- end of the spectrum that we're focusing on today. So probably you already know this, so I'm going to really whip through it. Um, but it's important to understand how people's funding is structured. Um, because this definitely flows through to how we can deliver uh, therapy programs within the NDIS. So many of you will know that there are three funding silos. Um, this, I reckon, if any of you haven't had any exposure, this was actually the most helpful document that I read when I was first trying to learn about it. It's the NDIS price guide. Um, you need to Google, make sure you get Victoria, and you make sure you get the new one that's just come out on the 1st of July. But this really outlines the way the funding is structured and it gives you all the line items um, of support that can be applied for or may well be in a plan. And when the plan comes out what you find is that you've got funding in each of these thri- silos. And we purposefully using the word silo because you can't move between them. It's locked in these silos and it's probably one of the what clinically what we're finding is a really big limitation of the way the plans are structured. So let's just go through them all. The capital supports, they're to do with um, assistive technology, equipment, um, home modifications, uh, vehicle modifications and if someone is going to be um, What's the word, Kathy? Awarded, SDA? Determined. Determined, there you go. They've got a, it's a, wor- a new word for everything, OK? <laughs> and a big tip, learn the language, because they don't speak our language. <laughs> we need to learn theirs. Um, if you are going to ask for specialist disability accommodation and you're determined to be able to have that, um, then th- that's where that'll sit as well in the person's plan. Then you've got the core supports. Um, these are really where sort of disability support worker supports sit, where SIL funding sits, um, transport, any one on one community access that's designed to support people's social or community participation will sit in core supports. Now, the focus of today, so where we're um, zeroing in today, is on the capacity building supports, because this is where the therapy. Um, funding sits. Uh, It's where support coordination sits which is a little bit like um, the old case management. Um, Behaviour support uh, sits here, so people with um, who where you're looking at managing challenging behaviours, building independence, um, uh, these types of you know skill building programs, the funding for that will sit under capacity building. This is again from the March dashboard figures, tells you how they've been allocating or where most of the funding has been allocated. And you can see that we've got about 70% of funding allocated to core supports um, overall in plans. Um, And we've got um, really a very pretty relatively, I think, we think, low level of funding allocated to capacity building and to... um, uh, this is behaviour support here with the word relationships. Um, so, not a lot um, down there um, with um, behaviour support. Another thing that's important to know when you're coming to look at um, what, how you can use the plan to maximise um, therapy support and um, capacity building is how the plan is being managed because that impacts on quite a few things and there's three ways it can be managed, self-managed, Plan managed through an inter... So self-managed means the person or a family member is managing the funds, and you've got more flexibility there. Um, plan managed, which is an intermediary like Mo- uh, Moira, who many of us are aware of, but there's a whole lot of them now. Um, or oh, there's NDAI, NDAI managed, which means it's the agency managed. So as you go down this list, you lose flexibility, but from a therapy point of view, if you want, if you're a private practitioner and you want to get paid, then this is probably the safest category to be um, working with. Um, Not to say that that there are always problems with the other two, but certainly our experience is you strike more problems um, with those uh, other categories. Um, It also comes to influence who can provide the services, because if it's NDIA managed, then you have to use a registered provider. Um, if it's plan-managed or self-managed, then um, the individual can choose any provider. You don't have to be registered yet. Um, but they're rolling out a um, registration... Actually, I've probably got a pointer on here somewhere. Yeah, they're rolling out a, uh, a national registration um, framework and it's currently being trialled in New South Wales and South Australia. Um, and it'll come into Victoria uh, this same time next year. Um, So, look, we're not exactly sure how that's going to all impact, but I'm presuming, Libby, where I'm presuming that everyone's going to need to be registered um, at at this um, time, but just exactly what we're going to have to do for that um, will depend. Okay. so knowing all of that, um how do we how might we work to be able to maximize the um, therapy supports that are contained um, in a person's plan, or at least utilize the funding dollars most effectively that are in a person's plan? And we've divided this up into two sections, firstly pre-planning and secondly then kind of working with a plan. So uh, Sorry for all of this. I had put a transition thing on it, but it, we've lost it. I think in the, in the, um... sorry. I'll go through this line by line. I'm sorry for the amount on this slide. So we've had a, we've got a number of many of you will have existing clients that you're working with, who are then transitioning, say, from slow to recover or ISP, say, onto um, the NDIS. So. I guess we've taken, and I know Libby does the same thing with her clients, um, a kind of a bit of a lead role really in trying to organise or coordinate the team to be able to um, do some comprehensive pre-planning. Now, I think if you get the opportunity to do that, it is really worth it. It's a really good exercise to go through. Um, So, we're using existing funding with existing clients with the permission of their funding bodies to say, look, we, we help this person get onto the NDIS. Uh, we wanna divert some of this therapy funding or case management funding, whatever it is, onto, into this activity. And everyone's been really happy to, to, to do that, to have that um, work done to really make that transition as well as possible. So if you get the opportunity to do that, I think it's really a good thing to do. And if you can take an overview of the, all the person's support needs, and what we're tending to do is to produce a really comprehensive document that pretty well is, without trying to take away the role of the planner, pretty well outlines what the plan as a whole will need to be. Um, in the NDIS language, um, using the language, using the phrases, using the support items, um, using all of the jargon of the NDIS. Um, And then what happens is that we're able to back all that up with reasonably short, perhaps two or three pages of therapy reports. So the individual therapists then writing a report, um, but to be able to pull it together into a comprehensive and cohesive plan, um, does work quite well. Um, we are finding that planners often don't bring that level of clinical understanding of brain injury, um, et cetera, to this process. And they've got a completely impossible job anyway. They're supposed to produce these comprehensive plans for complex people in, in with an hour's meeting, um, with a client who may not have, um, be able to really engage because of their brain injury. Uh, in a sort of insightful way in that conversation. So I think it's kind of set up to end up with really um, unsatisfactory plans the way the whole process is set up. So I think we can bring our knowledge and understanding of the client to bear and try to improve the quality of those plans. Um, I think it's really important to back it up with published um, measures. So we're finding again, our our clinical experience is that they're wanting more and more evidence, uh, more and more data, um, more and more sort of rationale for providing this. So we're sort of responding with that, with doing a lot more um, use of standardised um, tools. Um, We've also, the other little tip with this that we've found is that they're probably not so interested in hearing from us as therapists in these meetings. Um, and skilling up the client particularly and also the family to present themselves into the meeting and ask. Plus the use of documentation um, really helps to minimise the therapist kind of interaction in the meeting, which I think helps. Um, So we do things like support clients to make DVDs of things, um, come with photos, picture books, albums, their um, timetables, to talk about activities and things like that. And that, that does tend to go well, and clients certainly stating their goals. But not being asked on the spot for their goals, doing some work, helping them to develop goals that really under which all of the supports um, can sit. Um, when um, So those goals actually are really important. Those two, three goals that you create with the client um, are really important. So you do need to spend a bit of time thinking about them so that you can link all the supports you're asking for under those goals. Um, And the therapist therapist writing reports to those goals is really important as well. So that produces a really cohesive level of documentation um, for the planner. So everything links back to those three, say, key goals. And if you focus on a participation outcome, again, that is really good. You know, as a family member, a worker, a volunteer, um, you know, pet owner, whatever. Um, Remembering that the NDIS is a social model of disability, not a medical model. Although we are finding now, and this is creeping in, that they're actually wanting a lot more medical evidence than probably compared to what we were being asked for 12 months ago. So you need to really. Be creating a much stronger link between the injury and the support needs than perhaps we were being asked um, the therapist will generally create some sub goals because of course you can imagine those three goals are really broad um, they're not you know they're really overarching broad goals and then what the therapists are doing are creating some sub goals from those Um, where they can link them into the NDIS outcome domains, which again are on that price guide, listed out on the price guide. Um, And then of course outlining the therapy treatment plan and documenting the expected outcomes sort of relative to the measures that you've put in place. We then state the number of therapy hours and actually give the line item of what we think in terms of the NDIS um, uh, item number. And the meeting, we would ask for the email address of the planner, another little tip, you want to get that, because you often uh, won't generally give it out without being asked. And then we follow up with giving them electronic copies of all of the documentation. Uh, it's much more effective than giving a hard copy. Hard copies, well, I don't know where they'll end up, but not on the computer system from our experience. And they're not able to accept a USB. So you need an email address, and then they will we've had emails back saying that now it's being saved into the client file. So if you wanted, to kind of be certain that something's going to make its way into the client's file, it's best to, our experience would be best to email. Okay, so this is the item number where most of the therapy supports will sit. Um, You'll see here that that group therapeutic supports, that professional group, um, is all of these, all of these people here, Um, and the item number is um, this one, individual assessment, um, therapy and or training. Now, what you get in a plan is a lump sum for that. So that then needs to be distributed amongst all of the treating therapists that might be on um, on, on the client's team, which, you know, is a challenge that the support coordinator will have along with the family and client to work out the division of that funding, particularly where they don't approve the level of hours that have been requested. Um, The other place where therapists will tend to be able to um, work (coughs) and um, have their support sort of categorised is under improved relationships. um, With two um, professional item numbers here, of specialist behavioural intervention and support and then behaviour management planning and training. And you can see here, like typically, for those of you who've worked in TAC and probably even slow to recover, where there's been challenging behaviours, the tendency is to engage a neuropsychologist in that role to take the lead. But the NDIS have a broader view of who is able to provide behaviour support. And you'll see here a number of professions listed. Um, so it's broadening out who can provide behaviour support. But a word of warning is that you have to be registered, not only with the NDIS to provide behaviour support, but also with the Victorian State Government, DHHS. And that registration process is just... I don't know, think of a word. Terrible, <laughs> extreme. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> the good woman in me might can't really say what I think about that. Um, so uh, it's, it's, it's extreme but it's the kind of process that probably is going to be there in the national framework uh, next year if you're looking to um, work under this category. So that all can help get a good plan. The other group that we've got And for those of you, and we've had like a number of new referrals, where a support coordinator rings you up and says, you know, I've got 10 hours of speech pathology. Can you go and see my client? Okay. So that can be quite problematic when you've obviously, and some of you will have had that experience. You often won't get a lot of information from the support coordinator, not not even necessarily a diagnosis. So sometimes it's hard to work out whether that person is actually within your field of expertise. and you just don't know what you're walking into, probably something complex, and you sorry—and you might only have 10 or 15 hours. So what are you going to do? <laughs> and it's a bit tricky. It's taken us a while to sort of sort through how we respond to this. I think triaging the referral and goals and expectations carefully is really important, because it could be a huge expectation, 10 hours. So you need to really, before you go in there, you want to triage it. Um, Really important then, if you can, to identify some sub-goals. You know, look, I can't address all of that in 10 hours, but what I think I could do is address that. So maybe you, you hive something off that you think is achievable. And you're planning your therapy input to achieve a small goal. Um, so, And that should be reflected in your service agreement um, that you need to create with the client or family. Um, and in doing this, what you want to think about is your model of intervention. So how are you going to work? How do you make 10 hours work with somebody really complex? And this is sort of where we're going to next, OK? Uh, and this is what we're slowly kind of learning and adjusting as we get more experience with the NDIS as to how, how do we adapt our model of therapeutic intervention to fit within this new framework. within this new framework. So there's a number of ways we can work. Um, We can go and meet with client and work directly with the client. We may or may not then engage allied health assistants or disability support workers in that um, intervention, perhaps particularly if we want some follow-up practice of something, which is really the sort of slow-to-recover model um, of how we learn to work. We could work in a secondary consultation model, uh, which works quite well for some issues, um we could look at trying to train up this direct workforce 70 percent of the funding is being directed to disability support workers and when you read about what the ndis expect from a disability support worker it's generally up here where they their idea of their role might be here but the ndis thinks that they should be doing this so there's a real gap we're finding between sort of expectations and what's generally Making a bit of a generalisation here, but generally where a disability support worker would see their role. So maybe we're needing to do more to train up this workforce to sort of meet some of those expectations. Or do we work with a combination of the above? So I thought I'd just present a short case just to sort of outline, um, really outline this, um, um, sort of these sorts of options. So, this is a um, client of um, mine uh, who had an extremely severe brain injury about 10 years ago. Um, really complex, um, he, had, um, he was homeless before with long-term substance abuse issues um, and uh, a significant mental health condition. And then as a result of assault, he got an extremely severe traumatic brain injury. So he's living in a shared supported accommodation setting with three other residents. So you can see here, this is his first plan. Um, At budget is, you know, you look at that, and you think, wow, that's a fair bit of money. And, you know, he's certainly falling up that end of the spectrum when I showed you that earlier diagram of of funding. Um, But look at this, here's his capacity building budget, $9,500. He's someone who hasn't had therapy. He was on the slow to recover wait list for a long time but never made it. Um, So he hadn't had much in the way of therapy. So 3.6% of his budget was capacity building and he's got massive issues. And this funding was to support me to achieve my communication, mobility, behaviour support and skill development goals. So, and there was no allocation of funding for improved relationships which is where behaviour support sits. So, of course, all the therapists went to meet him and went, there's not much I can do. He tried to hit me. Um, He just screamed, what what can I do? And everyone went, oh, well, we need some behaviour support. So the OT got 18 hours under this budget of OT. Um, She wasn't... um, She didn't want to take up the behaviour support element of it, so they split the OT. Budget. So they provided behaviour support under this category of improved daily living, which I'm seeing happen a bit because there are so few people registered to provide behaviour support. It's really hard to find a behaviour support clinician in brain injury. So sometimes, to get around the registration requirements, they're slipping the funding into improved daily living. Anyway, so um, what happened? She she gave up ten hours, and that went over to behaviour support, and that came to me. So this is his team. He's got twenty um, four hour active support, um, a dedicated house manager, which is a critical factor uh, in this whole story. Um, he also got fifteen hours a week for one on one support to take him into the community. He had. He was initially allocated 18 hours each between speech, OT and physio Um, and as I say, the OT focused on the wheelchair prescription and then I focused on the behaviour management. So, what do you do with 10 hours? Um, That's that's the question. So, the first thing I did was administer the overt behaviour scale. Um, and totally recommend that. Uh, Some of you I know were at uh, Glenn Kelly's training last week on the behaviour over behaviour scale. It's a terrific instrument that can be used. Um, You don't have to be a neuropsychologist to use that. You can be um, someone from another allied health background. Um, You'll see as we go through, we've put some um, references here. I'm just going to to segue a minute and point this out, this is the new website that we launched last week as a result of our workforce um, innovation funding. Uh, www.mysupportspace.org, um, and there's a. Ho- Libby will show you at the end, but there's a whole heap of resources on this website that I hope that people will find very helpful, including a link to the Avert Behaviour Scale. Um, So it looks at the presence, frequency and severity of nine most common behaviours. So this is his results. Now this, just eyeballing this, this is a very high level of challenging behaviour. So five is actually the ceiling level. That's the highest you can score. And you can see here in terms of frequency of verbal aggression, uh, frequency of physical aggression towards other people, perseverative behaviour and adynamia. Um, and severity levels are really very high as well, particularly here for the verbal aggression. So we've got just multiple types of challenging behavior occurring throughout the 24-hour period. It's extraordinary that there was nothing in these plan for behavior support. Um, but anyway, um, that's kind of what can happen. So what could you do? What can you do with it? Because we are finding ourselves in this situation where we've got these small amounts of funding. How do we use it purposefully with people? So just just have a look at this as the framework for the next few slides. Um, So what I've done here is divided into capacity building supports here. So we've got a therapist at this um, hourly rate that I showed you before. We could have an allied health assistant involved Um, And there is a line item in the price guide for therapy assistant. They don't actually mention the word allied health assistant, but there's a therapy assistant line item and that is the hourly rate. And then we could look at, we're going to talk to you, a lot of our project was about looking at health professional students um, and uh, potential roles that they can play um, in delivering capacity building particularly in Shared Support Accommodation. Um, But, um, yeah, obviously, there you can't charge for a student. So they are a free resource, although one, obviously, that needs to have a lot of support and supervision. So we've got these options here in terms of utilising this funding, which would be invoiced under that 3.6% of the capacity-building budget. But of course, you've got all these other supports here, the core support, you've got a house manager, we've got 24-hour house staffing, and we've got 15 hours of one-on-one support. So you've got a huge amount of support down here and a a tiny little bit up here. So we need to think about how to utilise this whole kind of support structure. So let's look at our options. Well, one, I could use the hours, I could go and I could meet with him, for an hour a week, for 10 weeks. I don't, I actually don't know what i do um, with him. Um, I could perhaps spread it out, maybe he'd last half an hour over 20 weeks, but there's no sort of direct working with him. He He does not have the capacity at this point of his rehab to self-regulate his behaviour. He doesn't have insight, very severe. In terms of, Managing his behaviour, there's nothing I can do. I don't think directly by directly working with him. Now that does go again. So some of you who've been in, have been in this situation too, where someone will say to me, "You're a psychologist. You go in and tell him that he can't hit the staff. He'll listen to you." Well, I could go and do that, but I don't wouldn't expect that to have any outcome at all. So that I think would be a waste of his funding for me to do that. So and that's not what we did. So another option that we might have with that funding is if I use half of it, uh, five hours, and then direct um, the other half of the funding towards an allied health assistant, someone trained um, and able to deliver a therapy um, program, including working with me to work up a behaviour plan, Perhaps what we could do is pick one of his community access shifts, because at the moment he has just a different a different workers coming in all the time. They take him out in his wheelchair. They go for a walk. They might go for a caf to a local cafe. Generally, then he'll get quite agitated and start screaming, or might do something, and then they have to leave. They go for a bit of a walk, and then they come back. So it's not a particularly purposeful shift. Um, I mean. It's, Terrific that he gets out of the house, gets a bit of fresh air um, and all of that. But maybe there's a way of working these community access shifts up to be able to embed some behaviour support into that and to perhaps create some more meaningful roles in the community. So what I could do would be to engage an allied health assistant, take one of the um, three hours of community access put the allied health assistant in there and work directly with them for, um, what have I said, seven weeks for them to try and work up a routine for a community access shift. Then hand that over to a community access worker and they would continue with that shift. So I think that could be a useful, I don't know, I'm really interested to hear how you'd use this funding. You know, Some of you might come up with some other ideas and we're really keen to hear them. So obviously this funding, core funding, is ongoing. So um, whereas this funding is going to run out pretty quickly. So we could transfer that over and he might have one shift a week um, where he's doing something, I I don't know what it would be, but um, something that's perhaps a bit more in line with his interest and his key, um, his role, um, the roles he's keen to participate in. Anyway, we didn't do that, but we could have. we're just, just going to segue a little bit into Allied Health Assistance because I think there's a lot of potential within the NDIS to really build this um, group of workers. So people who, um, again, some of you worked in hospital settings, you'll probably be used to working with Allied Health Assistance, and mainly being employed in hospitals um, and also in nursing homes. Um, and generally, we will hold a CERT 4 qualification in allied health assistance, but not necessarily. Um, when we've looked at some of the um, studies on who is an allied health assistant, a New South Wales study, about half had this qualification. The other half had you know, qualifications, say, as a, um, a chef, um, a, uh, in some sort of recreation, um, leisure worker, um, a um, personal um, a trainer. Um, So, or a gardener or a woodworker, a tradesperson, someone who's coming in with a particular skill um, in an activity area can certainly be employed as an allied health assistant. There's no necessity to hold this qualification. It's actually up to the therapist to um, certify that this person is working at that higher level. Um, and the therapist is the one that's guiding and directing the allied health assistant and the one that kind of vouches for their uh, capacity uh, to be involved. Um, So, um, I think that what we would need to do and what we've looked at as part of this project is to sort of work out how do we transition that model that's worked quite well in, say, hospital rehab settings into a community setting. So there's certainly um, a clear division of role between a therapist and a um, allied health assistant. And I think it's really important for us as therapists in the room to really hold that line, that they are not a replacement for a therapist. And we do run a bit of a risk that people might start to see them, well, they're a lot cheaper, you know, allied health assistant will get them, we can't afford a therapist. Um, that is completely... Um, Inappropriate because they do need to be guided by a therapist because they're not coming with the same background. Um, it's also we would be concerned if people just started classifying disability support workers as allied health assistants um, without any sort of level of supervision or sign-off or um, any of that sort of thing. So um, used appropriately, though, under the guidance and the direction of a therapist, and under the therapists, um, professional indemnity insurance policy, because that's a really important aspect of this, they need to be properly insured. Generally speaking, they will come under the same insurance as the therapist in the therapist practice or the hospital or the um, um, place where they're being employed. Um, so therapists assessing and planning and then delegates, um, trains the allied health assistant and then ensures that they're doing the job adequately. They go ahead and do it, report back to the therapist, the therapist upgrades or downgrades the activity and moves the sort of um, progression of the client's skill along. So I think there's a lot of opportunity here to um, think about how we might use allied health assistance um, to deliver some of this very, particularly the sort of slow stream rehab where it's really about getting lots of consistent practice in order to build the skill. Um, funny, they, talk, on one hand the NDIS talk about the Allied Health Assistance but there's actually, as I say, no line item. Um, I think that probably will change but um, they do talk about Allied Health Assistance, provisional psychologists and students and their role within in the NDIS. So there's a, a kind of a, um, they're frequently asked questions, this was their answer about not being able to charge for um, students, um, uh, of course, but anyway it needs to be said, um, and also that But a student can be employed as an allied health assistant or a provisional psychologist could be employed as an allied health assistant and if you're employing that person and supervising that person then of course you can charge for their time even if they're at uni, uni the rest of the time. Now. There's a fair bit of work going on behind the scenes around allied health assistance. This is a, um, this was produced by another working party. Uh, Anyone wants to have a look through this. It's, this is all about how to use and work with an allied health assistant. I said to Libby yesterday, I've got page three on this and I normally don't mind sitting down and reading things like this. It is so complicated. Um, There's such a procedure in here about it. But I think for those of you, and look, I shouldn't have probably said that, but one day I will sit down and read it. Um, but there's an absolute process in here that's guiding therapists on how to use an allied health assistant in the NDIS. Now, we're, oh, what happened? Um, <coughs> we're not sure that, are we Libby, that this is actually gonna come into action?
1: Yes, so it's about to be launched. The disability it's launched. Conversion to be launched
0: this month. Okay and when we're supposed to follow the guidelines that's the thing so we've got the documentation they're running seminars and things that um, you there's someone that if you email uh, Libby we can give you the name of the person who's running seminars if you want to go to them and learn about it but how it's going to roll out into the NDIS it's not clear but there is likely to be something more coming about allied health assistance. And it's likely to have quite a framework around it. Um, if you can get through all that bureaucracy of it, I think the service will be a really good one to be thinking about um, expanding. So anyway, we'll come back to this. Um, so thinking about how to use these hours, of course, if you look here, um, you know, we've got, we've got a huge resource here. um, And that we probably should be looking much more to tap into. Um, And that's actually where I um, went with uh, what we actually did. So this is, this is how I ended up using the funding. So I did, um, I did use all my 10 hours and five pro bono hours um, because it just wasn't possible to do it in 10. I had a student on placement, work experience, and he spent five hours unpaid helping. Um, he came to meetings and he helped then write up guidelines back in the office. This is the one that I think was critical. This is 10 hours from the house manager. Now, um, I think really for those of you who've gone into shared supported accommodation where you've got clients with challenging behaviours and you've had the experience of trying to sort of support staff to um, implement a behaviour plan, well, my, you may agree with me that this person is critical. Without the house manager, it just almost might as well forget it. Not completely, but it's very, very difficult to implement. I, don't, I think I probably would have gone with the allied health assistant and the community access worker if we hadn't had a really good house manager but we did. A fantastic house manager who really wanted to get on top of this behaviour, understand it and support her staff, because they were being hit um, with enough frequency that it was of concern. And she spent another easy 10 hours. In fact, she did a lot of the observation of um, what of the personal care that where we, where we ended up focusing. And then the house staff, their long-term staff, their permanent employees, Um, They'd already had a lot of behaviour training. Um, They'd had a lot of contact with therapists over the years. Um, And they were all there 24-7, plus, you know, 100% attendance at house meetings, which again, go think about the last house you went to and a meeting with staff. You know, did you get 100% attendance? We pretty well got 100% attendance at two meetings. So that was fantastic. And I really do think that it's because of this core, really good core support, that we could make this work. So I think that's sort of looking at the whole picture, really, trying to just pick something out where you can make a difference. Um, and it's not always um, straightforward. So that's that's how we use the funding. So it was I had three meetings with the house manager, two staff meetings. So i would given the OBS, but the really good thing to do after you've administered the OBS is then to set up some um, more specific recording. And again, for those of you who are at Glenn's session yesterday, he, uh, last week, sorry, he certainly recommended that as a way to go. So you get more of the detail in relation to the specific situation where the is being displayed. And the key behavior with this client was in the morning with personal care. The level of behaviour was extreme. Um, So, we set up some behaviour recordings for the staff to implement so we could get some documentation. Um, And then that gave us some information about what was going on. The staff brought their observations to the meetings and we problem solved why why this behaviour was occurring and what we were going to do about it. And, you know, just that education, you know, this guy is actually amnesic. Staff didn't realise he was amnesic, despite all their experience and how fantastic they are. They didn't realise that every time they walked into his room in the morning and just started to throw his blinds up and pull off his covers and come on up you get, time for your shower. He had no idea who they were. They couldn't believe it. It's like, we've known him for four years, of course he knows who we are. It's like, hang on a minute, does he really? And then they went away and checked that out and they're like, you're right, he didn't know who I was. They were astounded. changed the whole greeting in the morning, the way they introduced themselves, where they oriented him, all sorts of different things. And they were able to then take on board all these strategies as they sort of understood the brain injury. And we collaboratively problem solved and agreed on the selected changes to personal care. Um, And we had one meeting, because of course there wasn't many, but the second meeting we then reviewed and adjusted the strategies. I wrote up guidelines and documented the new routine. Um, And then, so this is what happened. So these were our um, categories that they, um, they just did a frequency count, how often the verbal aggression. So we're talking about the hour, hour and a half it takes to do personal care. So this is the level of verbal aggression to the carer. He used to yell out to the other residents and tell them he hated them. Um, most, a lot of the time. There was a fair bit of that going on and maybe you're usually one or two attempts to hit the worker during that time. Not very occasionally saying something positive and he had everything done for him as quickly as possible because they just wanted to get it over and done with. So um, we problem solved a whole new approach and staff were great. They um, got really got on board with this. So instead of coming in and just assuming he knew who they were and why they were there, um, two people talking to each other, talking to him, um, they, they had a very structured kind of um, approach in the morning, which just kind of eased him in, oriented him, got him ready, got him agreeing to the first step. And when they did that and sought his permission in each step, The second staff member would come in only as required rather than sort of in there chatting to the first one things just really improved Um, and that's after three months you can see the level of aggression towards the workers has gone down there was none interestingly to anyone else Um, physical aggression didn't occur and we're getting 17 positive comments thank you for helping me i like you Um, this sort of thing. And one of the key things was this, um, this active participation. He started doing things. He he actually was shaving himself at the end of three months um, and he was doing a few other tasks as well, which was fantastic. It did um, make the um, whole thing, and that was the ninety minutes. The first, when we first started, it was sixty. Now it's ninety, but the staff could come in and out and do other things in the meantime, so they they weren't particularly concerned about that. So, I think um, just in conclusion, around the workforce, I think what we would say from our experience is that you know we all really need to try and improve the level of knowledge that the planner has, um, the information we give them about the client to try and guide that planning process in a way that will get the outcome that we feel from a clinical perspective is the one you know the clients need, which include access to capacity building supports. Because we know that if we continue Um, to deliver a level of capacity building over a long period of time that people will slowly improve in their independence. And, you know, and even in three months he's shaving, like that's just fantastic. There's all this potential that sits there that is often untapped when you don't have that capacity building layer in the person's team. We also, I think we do need to get on board with this whole new model that's there. We need to learn the language. We need to sort of And we do this all the time, try and stop ourselves from complaining about it too much and going, oh God, you know what they've done now? And we go, no, not going there. (laughs) You know, what can we learn from that? Let's move on. Let's look at it positively. Let's try to work how how to work within this framework. But at the same time, try to influence the way it's evolving um, so that it's more, um, you know, it's just more suited to our clients' needs. Um, And, you know, when we, think about our limited hours we need to make sure that's reflected in our service agreements. and risk management is a really big part of all of this which we haven't really gone into but i'm just putting it there to just alert you to the fact that this is this is quite an issue Um, we can use mixed models Um, we can think about how we can utilize a disability support workforce which is there funded in huge amounts and often huge numbers um, whether we can introduce allied health Assistance or make use of this gorgeous budding workforce of allied uh, of health professional students, um, and then use spreading our hours out a bit more so they can work under our supervision and um, with our support. Um, whoops, sorry, gone to the wrong one. And then the last one is to sort of. Um, think about whether we need to be thinking of allocating training hours within the hours that we've been given, that that probably should be a factor um, in um, what we um, include in our plans to really build that disability support worker and knowledge. We've kind of put the word mandatory with a question mark there and we're sort of saying that because our experience in the project where we offered health professional students, allied health assistants, and disability support workers training, um, uh, digital training. We had full take up by the health professional students, allied health assistants, and I'm sad to say one of how many, Libby? 50? One of 50 disability support workers took it up on a voluntary basis, which was really disappointing. Um, And so I don't know. If you make it voluntary, I'm not sure how many people will avail themselves on on it. So that probably needs some discussion as to just what training people should be bringing. If you're expecting this level of performance, you really do need to be able to provide people with training to sort of bridge that gap. Um, So um, I think in terms of that training, just to expand that last point a little bit more, um, within the NDIS, they really are, and you can see just by the allocation of funding, 70% to core support, 30% to all the rest of it, that there's this big reliance on this core support workforce. Um, I think, you know, I think it's possible to really work with this workforce and to really be able to do some really good stuff. And I think what the outcome we got with AA probably, um, we had some pretty ideal conditions And I think they kind of need to be there to get the the results. The dedicated house manager, critical, critical. Um, She's on site. Um, Long-term permanent staffing, very few agency and casual staff. Regular mandatory ABI training within that workforce. And experienced um, health professionals coming in and being able to um, know how to use those hours, quite make quick kind of clinical decisions. And when the workforce is knowledgeable, well trained, well managed, supervised, I think we can use those small hours quite effectively. Um, now, so what we um, have done is to considering these training needs about the health professional students, and also the disability support um, um, workforce. What when we've run this with Libby and Jan and our other um, partners, which were Scope, Urella, um, uh, and Victoria Community Living and Emma G. Um, I left, did I leave anyone else out? Libby? I think that was
1: everything. That's the everyone. Foundation?
0: Did I say tipping? I know. Oh, no, I didn't say tipping and tipping. Um, you know, what we did was try to um, pull together a whole lot of training resources um, and put them, um, that's Libby's brilliant idea, to kind of bring it all together into a website that is accessible. So, there's so much here and Libby's going to take you for a tour through this um, uh, website now and then then we'll probably go to uh, questions and discussion.
1: Thank you, Thank you very much. Um, and as Sue said, we just really welcome you to use the training that is available on this resource for workforce that you're engaging with. Um, and also share this resource. So just to explain how the website works, um, we did try and really consider how we provided training. So there's written information, there's also videos on each topic. Um, ooh, that's interesting. We do that. Um, so that you can either access um, this training through reading, through watching short biteable videos, about three minutes in total, or some longer training modules up to about 40 minutes per module. Um, There's a couple of modules we're still editing, one on communication after brain injury, um, one on um, uh, person-centred support by MAG that are going to come onto the website in the next couple of weeks. But a majority of the content is already on there and it sits in this library section of the menu, which is on the left-hand side. So, um, as you can see, there's also a tab about the aims of of how you might use My Support Space, the website. Uh, There's a video on that as well as written information. There's a diagram of how you might use my support space and you can roll over that for some information. Again, just for people with different literacy needs and we do know, um, even highlighted in the most recent Productivity Commission report, the high reliance on the direct workforce, um, particularly coming in from other countries that may have English as a second language um, and how we might support them to access training information. Um, You can then go to the library tab and on the library tab there's six topics for you to look at. Um, and consider the training that sits within each of those topics. Um, Understanding acquired brain injury, support for community living, lifelong recovery, building capacity for participation, the NDIS. And then there's that tools and resource tab, which has a lot of those assessment um, or published measures like the Avert Behaviour Scale, the Care and Needs Scale, um, and other measures that might be useful in either talking to someone around their goals for participation or thinking about structuring supports. So if you go into each of those sections, um, you then um, get a photograph which has a key message on um, understanding acquired brain injury, for example. Um, You can then go to one of the topics that's listed on a button here, or you can search the website. So if you put in something like, I want to learn about how you structure routines, you can type that in, and you need to spell it correctly. And then you can search the website, and it'll bring up in the website all the topics, That relate to structuring routines and there's a lovely list there but you can't see it on this screen for some reason but it does work very nicely (laughs) Um, if you go to the topic of communication for example which Jan Mackey was very involved in developing all the resources on here you've then got a list of different um, written resources and then you've got these short um, three minute videos so if we look at the fact sheet on choice making it takes you to uh, a sheet which provides you some information around how you build choice making when you're working with someone with acquired brain injury it has a photo, or you can go back and go to one of the shorter videos um, on um, uh, communication, for example. And as I said, these are up to about three minutes long, these videos, and then there's a 40 minute module um, on a number of topics. So um, we just really welcome you to share this resource and use what's available on here because we would really love um, to continue to see the development of the ABI workforce in the NDIS and we, as Sue said, it's it's something that we know is being very heavily relied on. Probably two other things I just was thinking of in talking to your present discussion, Sue, was, you know, you look at some of those planning outcomes and go, we need a planning review. That actually was an inadequate planning outcome. And we have seen some real issues with actually getting a timely review, haven't we? Um, would you
0: like to comment on that, Sue? Yeah, um, I'm glad you brought that up, Libby, because I was going to say that um, clearly the team came to understand with Mr. AA, for instance, that you know we we needed a heck of a lot more behaviour support and a lot more other therapy support. Um, and there was, but the there was some talk of a review, but at that time the timelines for reviews were like 10, 12 months. So the the support coordinator said, well, there's no point um, going to review because we'll have our year two planning meeting before we even get a review. So we didn't do that. But what I did do, which actually is really important bit and particularly where you end up with a pretty inadequate year one plan is I think we can then really well document the issue. So and we did that with Mr AA. We gave them all the OBS data, we gave them all the results of the personal care um, and all laid all those issues out, really honed in on the risks to him, to carers, to his um, participation goals, etc., and created a really strong rationale. And just two days ago we got his second plan and I've got nearly 50 hours of behaviour support now. Um, So I think that's even if the year one plan isn't great you use those hours to then do almost the pre-planning for year two Um, and then um, yeah other times they will go to review I think when it's really bad we will go to review Um, but I don't know what your experience is. Um
1: there was a report released just in March of this year indicating that there were 6,200 reviews awaiting um, a, a, an internal review by the NDIA and certainly we were just talking yesterday and we were saying around the lunch table um, that we are seeing the agency at the most senior level trying to affect change, You know, saying this is not working, we are trying to do this differently. What we also know is this is just such a massive reform and to even get the workforce of planners to be um, available to do planning means that we're seeing what's being aimed for and the work that's being done to try to influence scheme design at a senior management level isn't always filtering down to what happens on the ground. So we are in a time of monumental change um, and we think it will improve and we think we all have a role, everyone in this room has a role, to try and help to improve the scheme for people that we're working with. Um, and that's why we want to sort of step through some of these processes today. Um, I guess the other interesting thing we spoke about yesterday that I thought was worth flagging, is, you know, Sue sort of given this structure of how you might go about working with the NDIS price guide, working with the budget that the person has to try and get the best um, support model to influence outcomes. What we've seen from the most recent NDIS reporting is, you know, Year upon year, we're seeing of the funding allocated to NDI's participants, um, in the last year only 66% of what was allocated in a plan was actually utilised. So unless you have this sort of expertise, um, the ability to self-advocate, the ability to have a family or support coordinator or therapist who can work with you to try and harness the supports you get in your plan, there is a risk of underutilisation of what's actually being put into a plan. And we think there's a range of reasons why that happens. Number one is the planning hasn't been correct and so you haven't got what you needed. Number two, there may not be the workforce to purchase from and we know in regional and rural areas that's a really big issue but it's also an issue Mm -hmm. in in, um, metropolitan areas. Um, Or or that you just may not know where to begin and we certainly hear that from NDI's participants and their families. So, Mm -hmm. So there's some factors at the moment that are creating challenge particularly for people with cognitive communication impairment that we all work with. Mm. But we think there are some solutions and we really value these sort of forums that like the Summer Foundation run to be able to talk together as a group. So I guess we'd really welcome mm. your comments and your learnings and, and your questions at this point in time. Okay. And just, sorry, just before we do that, I should just point out just one last thing. Um, as well as the library of information and training resources on here, there is a whole big link um, to all external resources that might be useful to you. Um, Summer Foundation have fabulous resources that we've listed on this, um, page of external resources and they're categorised by those six topics that the training's in. So, And then there's just details of our team and how to contact us if you want to get in touch. So that's that's the finish of the tour and we welcome um, you to use my support space, we welcome you to share the website with others to use it too. So, okay, so. yes, yeah, so there
0: was one Changing somewhere. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, hi, um, so I've got a question from the other side, I work here actually
2: um, and we have been doing a lot of pre-planning, so a huge amount of work trying to get appropriate and really great plans for our um, in-patients in who are being discharged. And, and I think it was really interesting to hear you say that the capacity building funding is, you know, it's when we have planning meetings, planners are like, oh yeah, wheelchairs, yes, 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 yes. And then we get to the capacity building, and we're like, yep, we need neuropsych, OT, behaviour support, physio, and, and, and they just push back. So I think it's one of the things to kind of be aware of is that the planners potentially aren't really understanding why those things are required because it's really obvious if you see a, a person who needs a wheelchair that they need a wheelchair, but it's those other things, and we're really working hard on getting those things in it. And we and and what we're doing. I guess my question is, what do you, what sort of language and what do you recommend we say or that we write in our pre because we do a whole lot of documentation that we hand over and you know sent through, like you were saying. Um, but I guess, and we're going for, you know, maximum, we're saying 50 hours of absolutely everything that we can. But the planners really aren't, um, I guess, acknowledging, and a lot, a lot we've, had, we've had a few instances where they're actually saying to us, that's not reasonable and necessary, um, or oh, a community health team can, you know, that's rehabilitation. So it, I think it's, it's a really challenging grey area, and, you know, as a health team, we're really trying to advocate. Yeah and for these services, but
0: we're hitting, hitting walls, I guess. Yes, I'm just going to repeat, yes. summarise and repeat yes. the question for the recording so I don't get into trouble. Um, so the question is, um, despite intensive pre-planning in an inpatient rehab setting, um, there's pushback from the planners around approving Um, therapy supports for when the person transitions into the community and perhaps what are any tips around maximising that. Okay well I don't look we've we've had some of the same sort of problems I don't think that and I don't think I've got any particular answer there and I think we pointed to some of the limitations including the planner's understanding you know this sense that community centres will provide this type of service when they won't. I think one of the things is to sort of get ahead of it a bit. Now, you, now you've heard their pushback, you come prepared with arguments against that. Mm-hmm. So you can say, oh, well, we have investigated mm-hmm. the local community centres and there is no community centre. Or he'll only get, you know, five hours of OT mm-hmm. um, and then you ask for what's on top of that. So you can say, well, we're going to ask, we're going to refer him and he will get five hours, but he's going to need another 25. So you sort of ask for, because they don't want to fund things that have already been funded by someone else. So you can start with your experience to anticipate what they're going to say and push back on that. I think linking things to the goals is really important. And we will always end our reports with the risks if this funding isn't, um, if this funding's not approved, then this is what's going to happen. And it is about, you know, that they won't be able to maximise their social and community participation, which is usually a goal. That's two ideas from me. Libby or Jan, have you got any things to add? I think the obvious of um, linking to the disability. Yes. Like making sure they know that the disability requires that service and the risks of not providing it. Yep, so linking back to the disability. And I think I've noticed that change is that they want more and more evidence around that, that disability. So, I think that's, that's great.
1: I think one solution we see as a quick fix is if we could get the agency to agree to um, what they call offer fungibility of those three silos, that actually if you got a plan and you had some adequate funding and core support but you wanted to choose to purchase some capacity building supports, that you could actually do that with those core dollars. You could have that flexibility like we had in individualised support um, packages through Department of Human Services in Victoria. So that's something that we've been lobbying and we'd encourage everyone else to lobby. But um, I agree with all those um, suggestions. There was one other thing that came to mind for me. and now, uh, Oh, I think you're in a really challenging position being working in an inpatient setting. We've certainly seen the agency are really trying to ring fence anything that might be broadly a health-funded service. Mm-hmm. So you are probably in the hardest of the hard position in negotiating capacity-building funds. Um, and I think um, what you, another thing you might consider is, you know, acknowledging that this person is very early post-injury, that if we invest now, um, we're going to see good um, early intervention outcomes. Um, you could ask for a shorter plan approval and try and push. No, we've still not that. getting that yeah, either. We, yeah, yeah, we've, tried, yeah,
2: we've had tried that in the yeah. past, yeah. but like, as you say, it's just even if you request a three- or six-month plan, it's, they're just not... Like, yeah. they say that
0: they are, but then they're not reviewed. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 I mean, and then the, yeah. then you've got year two, you know, and then some... And I know this is terrible. I can't even believe I'm saying this. Um, but, you know, you just... That's what you've got. You try and work with it, and then you write a really... Someone who ever seen him in the community and then tries to write a really powerful report and possibly... Um. The thing
2: we've tried to is to get quotes from possible providers so we'll say oh well we've had a quote from you know the behavior support team and they're quoting this and so here it is and, and you know this is what we're um what we're asking for I'm just looking at Lisa. That, that's worked hasn't it um or not so like I, I'm just wondering if that because that's the other thing too is it's quite hard to find And it is, I don't know, who will provide us quotes too. Yeah, absolutely,
1: and I take your point, Sue, in that we are trying to not speak in NDIS planning meetings. Um, We are very much trying to sit there as a support for the patient, Um, but when the patient lacks insight and isn't even aware of their challenging behaviours, and we're sitting there going, they need 50 hours Mm -hmm. in neuroscience, Mm -hmm. the planner, I think, finds themselves in a a challenging situation Mm -hmm. because they want to hear the client, yet they can see the health team going, yeah. these are going to be problems and risks in the community. Mm. And yes, they always come back to, is 50 hours or whatever it is really reasonable and necessary? Yeah. Mm. So we Sometimes, are well, really challenging.
0: Where, and where it's difficult to say some of that really challenging stuff in front of the client. Yeah, again, really hard. yeah what, what we're also doing where we want to is, is set the start of the meeting up with the client saying their goals, This is about me telling them about their week, their, you know, what their interests and having a nice kind of conversation. And then saying, oh, look, they're only going to cope with half an hour, they're going to go. And then you keep people who can then give a more accurate um, account um, of what's actually going on. And that sort of can work all right. As long as you've got the client's voice in there at the start, Mm -hmm. and then you come and kind of backfill it with all that detail that the client's not going to report.
2: Yeah, and we have planners that <coughs> won't agree that, you know, if it's about the client.
0: You know, so yeah, but can't. it's also, if it's about the client, then if the client's fatigued or mm-hmm. unwell or oh, has got an appointment used, yeah. or something, then we've, we've not had any issue where we presented that this is the benefit of the client. Um, the client won't manage this meeting. Well, you've got people who are pretty early on. Um, oh, yep. You know, um, we're mindful of his uh, concentration span, his fatigue levels. Um, you know um and we've not had any pushback from that have you and i guess if the voice then maybe can come from a family member yes so i, I still think the therapist's not saying very much yeah. but if when the client leaves the yeah. family members are ready to
1: take, take over part. Yeah. Yeah. and just the last comment i'd make and kat has got one too is that what, where we do see most capacity building funding put in is where there is risk identified yeah. and particularly risk to the participant or to others, And but what you would then want is to try and harness those capacity building funds into that therapy line item, not into the behavioural support line item which most often needs to be agency managed and then you restrict the choice for the um, participant as to who they can purchase from. Um, so if. Often that discussion about risk is really an important one. And again, I say to families, this is really challenging, but we need to highlight what are the potential risks Mm. to this person, as Sue said, and really close off if this funding isn't secured. This is a risk to the community. This is a risk to the participant. This is a risk to their family. Kath, you had another comment?
3: Yeah, And just I'll cheekily get up and with the good women and add, um, just uh, you guys are up against that health NDIS interface um, and we do have a podcast on this that you can listen to Um, and where you're starting to move into is changing from rehab into small incremental gains, um, maintenance, uh, maintaining your functional capacity and also preventing deterioration. So that all those words that I've just used are all straight from the legislation. And where we keep saying um, reasonable and necessary, th- to understand that they're actually that is outlined. You can I'd really suggest going and finding that it's section 34. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking at every single yes, it's burned in our brains. Looking at every single point, and and going to the um, your planning meeting. Unfortunately, having addressed A, B, C, D, E, mm. and and lots of the things that you're hearing um, from these three people are actually you'll find the same wording in that legislation. Um, so mm. just it's the same, but in a different way. Yeah.
1: And yeah. certainly
3: I sat with the technical advisory
1: team at the NDIA last week and they said, um, yes, we think this sounds like something that this person could benefit from, yes, but we will be going to section 34 and we will be stepping through every element of the reasonable and necessary rule um, and that is the process a delegate will take. So, but yeah, just really acknowledge your challenge. Yeah, OK.
4: I just wanted to um, add, my name is um, Tony, I've um, worked in the NDIS um, space, not as an allied health professional for about four or five years. Um, I just wanted to share a personal journey because I wear another hat in that I'm the primary carer for my younger sister who has a brain injury, um, who was on slow to recover. Um, Just listening to all of you talking about the barriers with NDIS, Um, We very recently managed to push through these barriers for my sister and get her 24-7, one-on-one care to come out of hospital. And some of the the key things that that I think um, helped us to do that is number one, understanding the NDIS inside and out, understanding reasonable and necessary, um, you know, just the operational guidelines and also the pressure points for, like we said, planners. You you know, it's luck of the draw, who your planner is, they could have been in the role for two weeks. Um, and, and certainly in Kate's case, um, having a really, you know, d- like clear strategy going mm. into that planning yeah. meeting, having the right people in the room. Um, I've sat in in, um, in many planning meetings and I see that there seems to be different, you know, um, there's not one cons- consolidated uh, voice in the room. Um, but I've got to say as well, squeaker Bill gets the oil. And with my contacts mm-hmm. in senior positions mm-hmm. within the NDIA, you know, they, they're limited in what they can share with me, but I pick up enough to know what's going on behind the scenes. I know that you know people there are working with broken systems. There's a lack of communication. Mm-hmm. But I, I tell you what, the, the writing are very concise. Um, document that covers what the issues are and contacting the federal member for our area, I know that they've got a direct line in. So when I, you know, I'd go through the process that the NDIA wants us to follow and get brick wall, brick wall, brick wall. I mean, it took three and a half months of fighting. She had priority access. I was guaranteed we would have a planning meeting within two weeks. So it's, it's not easy, but those are the things and and again i hearing um the conversations around risk you know and being really articulate and i wonder when i hear you know we're asking for 50 hours we didn't ask for hours what we said is this is what is required and also having a comprehensive 90-page ot report that was actually written for for legal reasons um, but i was able to leverage that and that had very distinct um, you know recommendations that they could put hours um, and also when we're when we're supporting families um, you know with the questions around the HUDAS um score that was also key knowing that um, and making sure we had the maximum HUDAS score which opens up the funding mm-hmm. and then making sure that we have really clear evidence and so as i said I've, i pr- provided that comprehensive ot report um, but knowing that that planner is under enormous pressure to pump out these plans all over Mm -hmm. the place. She's not going to have time to read that. So my two-page brief to her, I wrote everything in the plan. I gave it to her on soft copy. I knew how many words she could put into each section on their system. So she cut and paste exactly what I wrote. Into you know the It's all
0: very strategic. I think and that's gritty. one you know yeah. that idea of writing it up and then emailing it, so yeah. they can't email it as a word, not a PDF document, and they will cut and paste it. It's fantastic. And then the other little tip there about the who, yeah. you certainly answer those questions on the worst possible day. So you don't, we started off, and I think they started off, wanting to know what the person could do and, you know, the potential and the goals and all of this, but it's become very much what are the problems, what are the risks, what's the disability? So we've segued into that and certainly answer on the absolute worst day. Yeah, and the WHO DAS is
1: detailed on my support space under that um, tools and resources tab. But um, I agree and I think, again, having the person with acquired brain injury who may not have insight actually responding to those questions actually won't give a true representation mm. of what is life like Absolutely. on a worst day. Um, it
4: limits that funding. And look on Kate's plan, you know I'm happy to share we got a six month plan that the agency was pushing for three months. But, but we've got a five hundred thousand dollars plan with over um, twenty five thousand dollars for Allied health for six months. Um, and you know we will use that responsibly and and use that to you know to open up the opportunities to demonstrate to the agency that this is money well spent and people with brain injury need this kind of support so um thank you very much thanks for for for
1: sharing your story um and can i give you one other good news story just um you know there is a pilot that's been underway um, called my participant pathway and it's been um, piloted geographically Um, And I was just involved in my first planning meeting with um, someone who has a son who has an acquired brain injury and where you actually get to um, see a draft plan before it's finalised and you get to sign off on that draft plan with the NDIS delegates sitting with you. It was three weeks from getting the planning meeting to seeing the draft plan. In the end the family said we're so happy with this plan and so the lac said well do you need, really need to meet with a delegate no that's fine okay we'll just sign it off it was the best experience i've written to the ceo of the ndia to say how <laughs> fabulous it was if you do get involved in that pilot or have anyone that's involved in it, or anyone that has a good experience i think we need to try and articulate to senior management what were the features of that good experience. Um, you've just articulated how having skilled advocacy, knowledge, and, and an ability, I guess, you know, literacy to understand these very complex rules is so key. And for many people we work with, they don't just have family support to do that. So it's what are the other features we need to build in to ensure people with brain injury get a good outcome? And it's, yeah, it's challenging. Mm. Another question. There we go, Yeah, okay.
0: That's Cool.
3: No? No. Well, good. Good. Um, <laughs> we, we're in a team um, that sees an NDIS client in a nursing home,
1: and it's year one, and we're
3: heading into a young year person, 30, person in a nursing
1: home.
0: 50-ish. Um, and we're, I mean, this is our first NDIS client, and we're finding that we don't, it's not necessarily a lack of funding for us as therapists to see her, but to actually um, implement what we
1: want to do at the nursing home is impossible, mm. and so because they're not funded to, to like she can do a slide board transfer independently, but well with supervision, but they won't do slide board transfer so they have to. Yeah. Mm. So it's and you can't get agreement. She needs electrical stimulation put on and off. They won't so do you know, a private
0: they, they won't know, take yeah. a couple of electrodes off her shoulder because it's not on their job description. Is it a longer term goal for her to leave the nursing home? That's yeah, well that's our yeah.
1: that's our plan. probably there, one of the tips for advocating yeah, yeah. the next is we looking at the budgeting of having her living independently or <laughs> supported accommodation.
0: It looks like a priest here in the room who right, <laughs> I think we'll hand over to here.
3: Gosh, that's a big question.
0: Yeah. Actually, want to repeat it though
3: yeah. the um, So it's a young person. Uh, under 65 in a nursing home and has sounds like good Amount of capacity building in the plan There's funding there, but the it's the limitations of actually living in a nursing home um, uh, I guess preventing that person from being able to reach their potential yep. summary <laughs> the yeah. yeah, 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 so yeah, um, I guess the, uh, exactly as Sue said, the first thing is to get a goal into that, if that person wants to move out, um, which, yeah, OK, great. So that and that goal, get that goal into the person's plan and then um, get support coordination. So you talked at the planning meeting about getting support coordination and capacity building to develop a housing plan and explore all the options of where that person could move to. So that's that's a quick summary we don't
1: do that as part of our... So she's due for a review in November. We mm-hmm. don't put that in place. We ask for that review to happen in the next plan. Or do we kind of go ready, this is
3: what we're going to do? Yeah, if, you, if, you've, if she's got the funding at the moment, it sounds like, then, yeah, absolutely, start right now. And so we've got, um, you know, so many housing uh, resources on our website that step you through all of that and ones that are specifically written for people living in aged care. Um, and Penny, um, my colleague who's here, has written NDIS example plans of what that might look like. So, I think we'd, the quick answer, and, and Penny jump in any minute, um, is check all those out, look at those resources, and then um, call us if you need more. Do you want to add anything?
0: Yeah, the other thing I was just going to say is, I mean, do you have any one-on-one support hours that are in the plan? Six hours
3: a week.
0: Six hours a week. And who's... Right. For community access.
1: To get out of there.
0: Right, okay, six hours isn't a lot, isn't it? But. Um, it's got a lot of therapy support though, so listening to you, it
3: seems like we need to give them back up on the active therapy we are doing before so you can prioritise them and you
0: need to plan. It's yeah, even, you know, I don't know whether you're allowed to in the nursing home, but even one three hour shift a week where it's someone working under your direction to do the personal care a little bit differently um if that's possible might not be um you know to sort of just try and at least in hive off some area where you can keep building skills or maintaining the skills i know it's not the whole thing um but sort of parking that because you haven't got the resources um and trying to focus on something where you could perhaps hive off some of those hours pick one thing that you think helps and will help to um, increase her chances of, or widen her options about where she can go, um, even to be able to just document what her potential is. Um, that will certainly be something you would add into the next plan that you've actually achieved this with this bit of funding it demonstrates the potential if the funding could be increased.
1: Can I just say one other yeah. thing too, which is a whole nother breakfast meeting, which maybe some foundation could lead because they're experts in this area. But it will be so important to understand the approach the is taking to both supported independent living funding, which is the hours of support that are shared, perhaps, across people, possibly, um, and specialist disability accommodation funding, which is the bricks and mortar. And um, at the moment, what we're seeing is there are very few plans that are actually getting that payments for bricks and mortar, where someone might need a really high level of, of physical design in housing, where they might um, be in need to look at really targeted supports within their housing. Um, And it's a problematic area at the moment. So back to Kath's point, that first step is that sort of exploring all the housing options, documenting for the NDIS, these are the range of possible options with that support coordination input. Um, And then you start on a whole journey around, is this person eligible for specialist disability accommodation? Is it that they need supported independent living payments? Or is it that they need one-to-one support, like Tony spoke about for her sister? What is the, the model of housing and support mm. that's needed to, for this person to get the best outcomes um, relating to participation? Mm. So it's quite a journey, and Kath sort of outlined then the starting of that journey, which now is the window you're in with the next plan review.
0: Mm. Penny? My, my
4: comment to you is what has just been outlined is sort of the broad thing that workers can do. But perhaps for the participant, the most important thing is to think about how you fight institutionalisation. For that person, because come six months, come twelve months after being in residential aged care, moving out becomes a very difficult proposition for them personally. So I think do all that, but also in your work with her, really try and address what's going on for her.
0: Yeah. Well, you see, there's a risk. You you can lay that out. You know, that's a
3: and, oh, no, that no, no. and that's their language,
0: that's, you know, that's how you write this up. So yeah. you write it up according to, yeah, yeah. their framework. Yeah. Um, okay, Sadly, we finished? we'll have to finish it. We're
3: done. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs>